In these two readings, we heard two great promises. One was of a return to Jerusalem, a rebuilding of that glorious city following the Babylonian exile. And that happened. That promise was fulfilled. And then in our New Testament reading, we hear a promise of another Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem that God is building that we will someday get to experience. But in Ezra chapter 1, we read the beginning of the fulfillment of that prophecy from Jeremiah. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout the realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for Him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of His people among you, may His God be with Him and let Him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And with that, the exile is over. God's people are able to return home because God has been true to His Word. Just as Jeremiah promised, God is restoring the fortunes of His people. These are the plans that God always had for them. As a community of faith, they will once again live in the land and worship God in His temple. They are going home. When I was in college, I had a professor once tell me that you can't really go home again. Now, I'd never heard that expression before. You can't go home again. I've since heard it many times, but only this past week did I discover where it came from. It came from a novel, a 1940 novel of the same name, written by a man named Thomas Wolfe. And the title actually comes from a line at the end of the book. It says, You can't go back home to your family, back home to your childhood, back home to a young man's dreams of glory and of fame, back home to places in the country, back home to the old forms and systems of things which once seemed everlasting, but which are changing all the time. Back home to the escapes of time and memory. There's a lot of truth to this. We never can really go back home. Not home to how we remember it before. For me, going back home to Maryville will never be the same without my grandparents. Now, we'll go home for Christmas and Thanksgiving, and it will still be meaningful, but it will be different. And I'm a very sentimental person. You can ask Julia. I, I'm as guilty as anybody of reminiscing about the good old days, you know, of small-town America, of my magical childhood growing up in the 80s. I tell you, if you didn't grow up in the 80s, you missed it. The 80s were great. Of, you know, just, just thinking back to how church used to be when it was the only game in town on Sundays and Wednesday nights. But we can never return to the 80s. And in some ways, that's a good thing. We can never return to the 60s or the 50s or whatever time period you may reminisce about. And maybe like me, you feel a sense of loss when you reminisce about the good old days. You long to return home, whatever that means for you. I've heard some people talk about how today they feel 
homeless politically because their political party of the past has changed so much and it's, it's just gone too extreme one way or the other. Or I hear people feel that way about denominations or about other institutions that they have loved and trusted all their lives, but those things have changed. Communities and neighborhoods change demographically. Churches change, sometimes for the better, sometimes not so much. And there's no argument that the church in America has changed drastically just over the last 10 or 15 years. The American church is in sharp decline. People just don't go to Sunday school and they don't attend worship like they used to. Sunday nights and Wednesday nights are no longer sacred. Those are no longer church nights for our culture and not even for most Christians today. The ways that we reached and discipled people in the past no longer seem to work. Beloved program, programs like RAs and GAs and children and youth choir and Bible drill, they just, they just are falling by the wayside across the board. And for someone who grew up with those programs, who benefited greatly from those programs, that makes me long for home. But the truth is, we really can't go home again. Not in that sense. But there is a way that we can go home. But like the Jewish exiles, it's not home as we remembered it. It's home as it is today. We can't reclaim the past. But we can go and claim the present as God calls us to live right here and right now. And that's what the people of Israel had to do. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was in shambles. They're going home. But it's not home like they remember it. And as Christians in America today, especially for those of us who grew up in church, home won't ever look like we remember it being. As Wolf wrote, we can try to escape into time and memory. But that's not home. Those old ways that seem timeless, they have changed. Henry David Thoreau said that the present is the meeting of two eternities, the past and the future. Now, we can't return to the past, but we can honor it. We can learn from it. We can't predict the future, but we can hope for it and we can prepare for it. But we can only live in the present. So how can we return home to what is timeless and unchanging? How can we reclaim God's kingdom principles for our families and our churches and our communities? How can we live in this present moment as the people of God in a way that honors the past and anticipates God's glorious future? Well, I think that we can learn those truths from Ezra chapter 2. Now, if you're like me, you look at Ezra chapter 2 and you don't have a lot of hope for it. <laughs> Just look at it. And this is one of those passages of Scripture that you tend to skim over at best, right? But there is a lot we can learn from this. Let's, let's begin in verse 1. Now these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town in company with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Baana. 
The list of the men of the people of Israel. Now, I'm not going to read that. Uh, But let's look at what is here. There's the list of the men of the people of Israel, and we see those families and the numbers of them. The men of Bethlehem, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers of the temple, the temple servants, the descendants of the servants of Solomon. Now look at verse 59. See how quickly we read through that? It was great, wasn't it? The following came up from the towns of Telmelah and several of these other places, but they could not show that their families were descended from Israel. And we see there's 652 people here who could not prove that they were actual descendants of Israel. And from among the priests, you've got these different descendants of people. In verse 62, these searched for their family records, but they could not find them. And so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. And the governor ordered them not to even eat of any of the most sacred food until there was a priest ministering with the Urim and the Thummim. So, what in the world can this teach us? Well, it teaches us that hoping for home requires a long-haul kind of faith. Hoping for home requires a long-haul kind of faith. Over the past few years... Uh, that, can you get, get on the screen there for me? Point number one. Hoping for home... There we go. So you can fill in that blank there in your notes. Hoping for home requires a long-haul kind of faith. Over the past few years, I've been dabbling in my own list of names. I've kind of gotten into looking at my ancestry and doing some genealogy stuff. And it's fascinating. I mean, it really is. It's interesting to to look at who all is in your family tree and to see how their lives intersected with the history you've always learned about in school. It's it's fascinating. It's fun. It's, It's maybe even educational. I guess you could even make the argument that it could be useful and that you might find out, you know, some genetic history, you know, that could have health implications, I guess. But beyond that, it's merely a novelty, a hobby. But for the people of Israel, keeping genealogies was an act of faith. Even during the exile, they maintained their family records because they believed in and they hoped in Jeremiah's prophecy that God would someday bring them home. In our, in our Old Testament passage this morning, you, you read what God had to say about that they would return home and they would buy and sell land once again. Well, God had told Jeremiah to go buy a field. And he told Jeremiah to demonstrate this kind of long-haul faith. He said in Jeremiah 32, Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase. Put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. Jeremiah and the people who believed in his promise had a long-haul kind of faith. Now, while we can only live in the present moment, we have to live for more than just the present moment. God calls us to live in anticipation of and preparation for what He's going to do tomorrow. And keeping these lists of names was one way the people of Israel did just that. And they were able to demonstrate their long-haul hope. Because these lists of names were going to be necessary for proving the legitimacy of their ancestry. When they go to reclaim their ancestral lands, when they go to rebuild the temple and reestablish the priesthood, they have to prove their family line. It was a matter of keeping continuity between that old pre-exile line of David and the new post-exile inhabitants as true and faithful Israelites. 
And we see here in verses 59 through 62 the, the consequences of not keeping those family records. We see these people are excluded from the priesthood because they couldn't prove their connection to Aaron and the tribe of Levi. That legitimate connection with the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants was important. Because we're not just talking about individuals returning home to claim private property rights. We're talking about members of a covenant community. And that's the second kind of faith we need. Not just a long-haul faith, but a covenant community kind of faith. Because to be a Jew is to be a descendant of Abraham. It was to be a part of God's promise to bless all families on earth through you and your family. For the tribe of Judah, it was about the hope that maybe through you the Messiah would come to fulfill those ancient promises. And these lists reminded them that they were no, long range, no lone ranger Jews out there on their own in their faith or suffering exile by themselves. It reminded them that they belonged to a tribe. They were part of an ancient community of faith. The people called by God who had a hope and a future. Now for us today, despite how connected we may think that we are with our cell phones and our Facebooks and social media, the truth is it's easier ever now than ever to feel isolated and alone, isn't it? Especially in our faith. I mean, don't you ever feel like it's you versus the world? I know I feel that way sometimes. And if you've ever tried to share your faith, which I pray you have and you do often, it can feel like sometimes you're wasting your breath. Or that the people you're talking to just don't get you. Or you may worry about coming across as a Jesus freak. And today's culture, standing on your Christian principles, can even be dangerous to your reputation. You may be called a bigot, intolerant, a religious nut. You may even... Put your career at risk or land yourself in legal hot water. But you're not alone. You're not alone. No matter what you or your family are going through, you're not alone. As Christians, we are part of an ancient faith community. God's people, the church. Paul wrote that those who have faith in Christ are children of Abraham. So the story of Israel is our story. It's our family story. And we are all members of Christ's family, the church. His missionary force to make disciples to all nations. Which is why it is so important for followers of Christ to unite with a local expression of that ancient faith community. We need each other's presence and encouragement and support and accountability to remind us that we're not alone. So that when we wonder if we're ever going to make it, when we struggle with doubt or depression or frustration or temptation or apathy, when we stress over the state of our country and our world, we can hope for home. But we have to have that long-haul kind of faith because things aren't necessarily going to change overnight. It may take a long time. But we can wait with expectancy and we can prepare with urgency for what God has planned. I mean, after all, we know the end of the story, don't we? Jesus wins, amen? <laughs> but hope and faith, as great as they are, hope and faith require action. See, it wasn't enough 
just to maintain lists in the hope that someday they would return home. When God gave them the opportunity to return home, they had to take it. They had to do something. And unfortunately, not all of them did. Look with me in verse 64. The whole company numbered 42,360, besides their 7,337 manservants and maidservants, and they also had 200 men and women singers, and then they had several animals there. So, 40, you know, 50,000 some odd people. That's all? We're talking about the nation of Israel here. We're talking about people that are supposed to number the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Why? Why did so few return home to Jerusalem? Wasn't this what they had been longing for, praying for, preparing for? Like I said, it's one thing to hope for something and another thing entirely to act on that hope. See, returning home requires more than hope. Returning home requires knowing who you are. God had commanded the exiles in Babylon that they needed to settle in for the long haul. You might remember in Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah wrote them a letter and said, Guys, you're going to be there for 70 years. So settle down and make the best of it. Build houses, plant gardens, get married, give your children in marriage, seek the welfare of the land in which you're living, be good citizens, be soft and light right there where God has you. But God only intended them to do that for 70 years. And then they were supposed to go back home. He never intended for them to give on the hope of returning home and just settle in and become Babylonians or Persians. They were exiles. They were pilgrims passing through. They were there on a temporary visa. Babylon was not their home. But many of the Jews became assimilated into the Babylonian, which then became the Persian society. They became confused about who they were, where they belonged. Those who chose to stay in Babylon, unfortunately, they didn't do it for missional reasons. No, they rejected their identity as God's chosen people. They turned their backs on God's calling and His covenant in favor of their personal comfort and the surrounding culture. And sadly, there are Christians and churches doing the same thing today sacrificing their calling as Christ's ambassadors in favor of comfort and cultural correctness. Now don't get me wrong, we are meant to live in this culture. But we are not to be of this culture. In fact, we are here to transform our culture and to point people to God's heavenly culture, the culture of the coming kingdom of Christ. And Paul wrote about this to the Philippian Christians when he said, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews tells us, for this world is not our permanent home. We're looking forward to a home yet to come. You know, we need to pay attention to those Christians and churches that our progressive culture loves. And and we need to pay attention to those that are denigrated and persecuted because Jesus said in John 15, 19, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. We must not forget who 
we are as God's children. And that this world is not our home. We are here as Christ's ambassadors on mission in a foreign land to make disciples of the nations and to teach them the ways of Christ. That's why we're here. And for no other reason. And so, to be true to our identity in Christ, if we're going to return home by remembering our identity, who we are, sometimes that means giving up our comforts. The people who stayed behind, they didn't want to give up the good thing they had going. I mean, think about it. They built a life there. They had houses. They had friends. They had jobs. Why would they give all of that up to travel 900 miles across the desert to a wasteland where they're going to have to build a new house? And so for a lot of the people, it wasn't worth the cost. Or think about those, those, those Jews who were born in exile. Babylon, Persia, that was all they ever knew. Were they going to leave all that they knew to go to a land they had only ever heard about? A land that they knew was devastated by war? Going home would be hard work. Going home would mean making sacrifices. And as much as we long for home, to return to a time or a place where maybe we were spiritually stronger or more financially responsible and stable, or in better shape, we also tend to resist putting in the effort to get there, don't we? I mean, I long to return to the days when I was that skinny kid that stood up here 16 years ago and introduced himself to you. But I love ice cream and biscuits and fried chicken. I don't want to put in the work. I don't want to make the sacrifices to really get back there again. Spiritual growth is hard. Maybe you know that you are not as close to God as you used to be. But to, but to get there means giving up some time on Facebook to spend time in God's book. It means watching less TV and doing more praying. It means addressing that pet sin and facing those personal flaws or seeking or granting forgiveness with that person. And you just don't want to do the work. The truth is we get comfortable in our sin with our flaws, with our spiritual apathy. We've become content with the status quo and too comfortable living in and of this world. And the truth is the gospel of Christ, it makes some pretty hefty demands on us, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus really meant what He said when He said that we have to deny ourselves and take up our crosses daily and follow Him. And the apostles meant what they wrote when they told us to forsake the things of this world. Paul said in Romans 12 too, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. James wrote, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. In 1 John chapter 2, says, do not love this world nor the things it offers you, for when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God 
will live forever. See, nothing of real and lasting worth done for God comes without personal cost and stepping out of our comfort zones. We say we long for home. We want to see our country awakened, to see the family saved from the corruption of our sex-obsessed culture, to see the poor taken care of and the hungry fed. We say we believe in the sanctity of all human life and the importance of religious liberty. We want our children to know and love and follow Jesus wholeheartedly all their lives. But are we doing anything beyond just saying it and hoping for it? We have to do something. The church will not experience revival and growth unless we act. Maybe... Maybe this morning how God is asking you to step out of your comfort zone is simply to join this church. Maybe that's how God wants you to do something right now. Maybe you need to step out of your comfort zone and volunteer to serve in some meaningful way. Perhaps you've gotten too comfortable just sitting in worship on Sunday mornings. But you know in here that God expects so much more from you. He wants you to put your talents and your gifts to work as a fully functioning member of the body of Christ. Let me take a moment this morning and just shoot straight with you. Instead of beating around the bush, I guess like I usually do, right? We have lost many dedicated servants in this church recently. Men and women that I would call pillars of the church. And they have left some huge vacancies. Some of them we've lost because they've moved away. Some of them we've lost because they've moved on to a better place. But the shoes they've left behind are large. But I also believe that God doesn't move a member of His church unless He has someone else there ready to take their place of service. What if you are one of those people that God has either brought here or brought up here for such a time as this, to fill one of those essential roles. But you've been unwilling to say yes. In a few weeks, we're going to start our deacon selection process. Men, let me encourage you not to be too quick to dismiss the possibility that God would have you serve as a deacon in this church. And if God isn't leading you to serve as a deacon, maybe He's asking you to sing in the choir. It's your choice. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but seriously, we need some men in the choir, amen? Not that these men aren't doing a fantastic job, but there's another row behind them if you didn't know that. Maybe He's asking you to teach a Sunday school class or to work in our children or youth ministries, help out on Wednesday nights. Maybe He's asking you to drive a minibus to help pick up our children who are coming from Raysville. And I'm not just talking to the men this morning, but also to our women and to our young people, to my fellow Generation Xers and to our millennials. My prayer is especially that y'all would begin to take up the mantle that our older members have carried for so long. But senior adults, you're not off the hook either. And I know that you've served long and hard and I know that your comfort zones and levels of ability have changed. 
But I believe you can do a whole lot more than you think you can. If nothing else, you can be a prayer warrior. And you can write cards and notes of encouragement. And you can be a blessing to others, even from your home. If you're listening on the radio and you think, well, I'm homebound, I'm in the nursing home, that doesn't mean you can't serve God and His church by encouraging and praying for and reaching out to other people. You know, those of you who are retired and are capable, you are free to do things that our younger church members who are working and have small children, things they can't do. And I know for a fact that manna is hurting for volunteers right now. Maybe you can give a couple of hours a month to go pull groceries off a shelf and fill up a buggy for someone. Maybe you can go and visit some of our homebound and those in the nursing homes who love to have visits. Maybe you can work at the front desk in the church or help stuff cornerstones once a month. Maybe you can be a part of our bereavement meal because you're free during the day. Returning home means that we have to stop just going to church and start being the church, the people of God who are on mission in our community as salt and light. We have to give up our worldly comforts because this world and its comforts are fading away. And sometimes that means we have to go against the flow. This small band of people went against the tide of popular opinion. They dared to imagine the impossible, that God would lead them safely home through the desert, that God would use them to rebuild their once great nation and to see the glory of God return once again to His temple. And Ezra offers a prayer in chapter 9 where he talks about how God has spared a remnant. And this remnant was few in number because... They knew who they were as God's people and they rose to the challenge of seeking first the kingdom of God and trusting that all these things would be added to them. So y'all, no matter how dark our world, God has a faithful few. The gates of hell cannot stand against the church of Jesus Christ. Empires and nations have risen and fallen, but the church of Jesus Christ remains. And while the church in North America may be waning, the church around the world is exploding in growth in places like South Korea and China and India and Africa. Are you willing this morning to dare to be different, to go against the flow of those around you and to walk that narrow path that leads to life? Are you willing? Because what happens... Once we begin to see that progress, once God does begin to work, once things do begin to change, once we do start to grow and experience revival, are we done? No. Look with me at verse 68. When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave free will offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work. And then in verse 70, the priests, the Levites, the singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, they settled in their own towns along with some of the other people and the rest of the Israelites settled in their towns. We hope for home, we return home, but once we get there, we have to live at home. And real quickly, living at home requires two things. It requires, first of all, a grateful heart. Notice how they expressed their gratitude to God by over and above the tithe giving a free will offering. And notice that that free will offering was giving according to their ability. As God had blessed them, they wanted to return that and bless God. I heard somebody once say that God demands our tithes. 
but deserves our offerings. Now the children of Israel were giving God these offerings out of gratitude for the gift of returning home. But as Christians, have we not received an even greater, more indescribable gift? Greater than Israel returning home from exile, we've received the gift of eternal life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is your level of giving, is your worship and gratitude to God in keeping with the magnitude of His great gift to you? And the other thing was that they gave first to the temple and then they went home and took care of their own affairs. So it requires a grateful heart, but secondly, a kingdom-oriented heart. At least for this moment, the people of Israel had their priorities straight. Unfortunately, it won't last long. But here they focused first on the Lord's work and then on themselves. Can you imagine the new life our churches would experience and the impact we could make in our communities if our priorities were rightly aligned with the Lord's? See, all too often, we try to fit God into our schedule. We go to church when we can. We give if we can afford it. We volunteer to serve when it's convenient. I mean, let's be honest, we don't like to commit and tie ourselves down, do we? We like to keep our options open. But that's not how lordship works. Lordship isn't about fitting God into our lives and schedules. It's about centering our time around and building our lives upon Jesus Christ as our foundation. We, our lives, orbit around His Son. It's not the other way around. Now this entire sermon this morning really has been an invitation. It's been an invitation for you to come home to Christ. Maybe this morning you're here and you're like that prodigal son. You are lost and you think that the world has got the answers and it's the way to live, but you know down in your heart that it's nothing but pig slop. And you long to return home to Jesus Christ, to God as your heavenly Father. Maybe this morning you've never put your faith and trust in Christ for forgiveness and salvation. Jesus stands here this morning with arms open wide, welcoming you home. He wants to save you if you would but come. Maybe this morning the invitation for you is to come home to His church. If God has led you to worship and fellowship and serve here with us, what is stopping you from uniting with this family? Could it be that God is calling you this morning to step out of that comfort zone and become a part of our faith community and continue to serve and grow with us as one of us? Or maybe it's the invitation to come home to God's call to deeper discipleship, to grateful and cheerful giving, and to sacrificial service. Will that mean having to give other things up? Most likely. Will it mean having to do something that's a little scary and outside your comfort zone? Definitely. But that's why we have faith. Trust in the Lord. God has a purpose for you in this church and in this community. If you would just step out in faith and say, Here I am, Lord. Use me. I pray that this morning, whatever God is saying to you, you would step out in faith and obey Him so that your spirit can hear His spirit saying, Welcome home.